Luke 14, 1-24, hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, there were, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of our city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Although it can be tricky to navigate and is sometimes confusing, one of the things that we miss about being in Mexico is the protocol that still exists and is attached to interpersonal interactions, and particularly in social settings. Now, those of you who are from other countries, or even perhaps other regions of the world, or have traveled in other countries, know that many other places there is more formality about social interaction, and there are rules about how you do things. That has largely disappeared in the United States, and perhaps particularly in South Florida, although... 
when we are in more formal situations, the rules can reappear in a wedding or a particularly formal banquet or a funeral or something like that. Then the protocol comes back into place. In Mexico, if you go into a, a room, you should go around and greet everybody in the room individually. And you have to decide how you do that. Do you do a handshake, uh, a kiss on the right cheek? Do you do a, uh, a male-to-female hug? Do you do a male-to-male hug? And do you use the formal uh, you or do you use the informal you? So it get, get kind of tricky. And uh, whenever you mention your own house, then you immediately say, which is your house as well? And so there are these, these formalities that are very kind and very polite and very beautiful, although they can be tricky, and foreigners often have trouble managing these things, and we're often considered to be rude simply because we don't know how to follow these rules uh, of social interaction. In Jesus' day, there were these rules, as there are in most places and, and still are really in any place to this day. Now, Jesus was at a meal, and he did a couple of things with these rules. One of the things he did with these rules was he violated them. Uh, he didn't violate them simply to violate them and to be uh, out of sort with uh, the custom, but he violated them in order to instruct those who were at the table with him. But in addition to that, he took advantage of these rules and told some stories that, that ruffled these rules, that went against some of these rules. And these, these stories, these parables that put two things beside that which is known with that which is unknown and to be revealed by Jesus, that, that, that the ruffling of the feathers, the, the shaking up of the rules called people's attention and, and got people to ask, what's he getting at here? Now, the setting was this meal on the Sabbath day in the first six verses. And here Jesus, for some reason, had been invited to dine with the in crowd. It says that at the table, it was, uh, there were Pharisees, which we uh, met. No, we haven't met the Pharisees yet. We met the lawyers last week. The lawyers were the law experts, the experts in the law of Moses. The Pharisees were a group, an order of the Jews that were particularly strict about the way they applied the law of Moses. So these were the, these were the, the best of the best of the religious of that day, the Pharisees and the experts in the law. And for some reason, they invited Jesus after the Sabbath gathering. And they would have prepared the meal beforehand so that there would be no work done, and then they would eat the meal after the Sabbath gathering. But it says that we we, we do get a clue because it says in verse 1 that they were watching him carefully. So this may not have been a, a sincere invitation on their part. They may have had some sort of an ulterior motive, like we saw last week, that the lawyer tried to test Jesus and to trip him up. Well, Jesus was there, and there was a man in front of him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy is fluid retention. It's a word that's, it's, that's rather archaic, but it's fluid retention. It's not a disease in itself, but it indicates that there is a disease because the body is not able to get rid of its fluid. So the man was swollen with fluid. And it says in verse 3, Jesus responded. And that's an interesting word. He responded to what? They hadn't asked him a question, but he responded to the situation. This man 
on the Sabbath day with a disease that was evidencing itself in fluid retention. He responded to that and he asked them a question. And he asked them a question in verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And it says they remained silent. So they were watching him, and just like we saw last week, he turned the tables, and now he put a question to them. But they weren't able to answer it, because either answer would have been problematic. If they would have said, yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed, then they wouldn't have a basis to criticize him. But if they said, no, it's not uh, permissible to heal on the Sabbath, then they would be seen as hard-hearted when this poor man is there in front of them, and Jesus, whom they already knew could heal... Uh, they say, you're not allowed to do it. And so they remain silent. It says, he took him, he healed him, verse 4, sent him away. And then he said to them, he asked them a question, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Now, believe it or not, there were actually regulations about this. They uh, they had different regulations and different of the orders of the Jews said, well, yes, if you don't use any implements to pull him out, you can pull him out, or you can pull a son out, but you can't pull an animal out, but you can throw fodder down in so he doesn't, it doesn't starve. So really, there were rules about this. But the general consensus was that if there's an emergency sort of situation, an animal or even more so a son, well, of course, you can pull him out on the Sabbath day. But it says they could not reply to these things. So they were being very quiet. So the first thing Jesus did in this meal is he made it sort of tense by silencing all of the in-crowd with his questions that they knew the answer to, but they dared not answer because that would show up their inadequacies and show that Jesus was right. That's the context. Now, Jesus went on and he took advantage of another aspect of the party, the, the meal, that you have seen and in which you have participated many, many times. The guests were choosing the best seats. That's what we all tend to do. Uh, when we go to a sporting event, if it's not assigned seating, we try to get the best seats. If we go to a concert, it's not, not uh, assigned seating, we go to the best seats. If we, if we get onto an airplane, like Southwest, uh, uh, the, the aisles and the windows fill up, and then if you get on later, all there are are what? Middle seats, because everybody wants the best seat. We do that in the grocery store, we do that in the bank, we may even do that in church picking the seat that we like the best. Now, that's, that's a normal human sort of thing. And what they were trying to do is they were coming in and they were picking the seats closest to the host. Those were the seats of honor. And in the day, they had an established pecking order according to status. And he noticed that people were trying to get as close as they could to the host, the, the seats of honor. And so it says, he told them a parable. A parable. And what he said was this. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, verse 8, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, this is unusual because it says he told a parable. And it doesn't sound so much like a parable. 
Not like the parables we've heard yet. It sounds like social advice, etiquette advice, uh, and it sounds like it's based very much on Proverbs chapter 12, uh, I'm sorry, 25, verses 6 and 7, uh, which say this, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence, or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So it looks like Jesus is simply giving sort of etiquette advice when you're at a, a formal function. And you could also mistake his words as, as sort of a, an insincere ploy to be honored at the party. That's sort of what it sounds like. But when we get to the end in verse 11 where he applies it, we realize that he's not just giving advice about how to behave in a party. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a theme that goes all through the New Testament. We find this on the lips of Jesus. We find this on the lips of Paul. We find this on the lips of Peter and of John. This is the New Testament teaching that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be Exalted. What he's saying here is that the place of the follower of Jesus is the last place. That the the habitual posture of the, the Christian is to look for the last place. Now, we live in a sort of therapeutic culture. And we, we take everything through through kind of pop psychology terms. And we might read this and say... Oh, is it saying that that's where I belong? That's my status. That's my self-concept. That's my self-image. No. The point is not so much where you belong. The point is, where do you place yourself so that others can have a better place than you? Where do you go in order to give preference to other people? That's the point. It's not about you. It's about others. See, if you take the last seat, that gives the better seats to other people. Now, why? Why would that be the habitual posture that Christians should take, looking for the last seat? And the answer is very simple. Because we follow and we believe in one who took the last seat. And he didn't do so for the sake of being in the last seat. He took the last seat for the sake of others to give others the better places. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, or rather backing up to verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he tells us, Why? Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you want to talk about taking the last place? 
Jesus, the Son of God, that's what He did when He came to this earth. He didn't burst onto the scene in apparent glory. He came onto the scene in poverty and humility. And that is how He lived His life. Putting others before Himself. And the final uh, and the the most magnificent demonstration of that was He took His place on the cross so that those who trust in Him might have our sins forgiven, and so that we might have entrance into salvation and into life and into joy. He took the last place. Not because that was the place He deserved. On the contrary, that's the place we deserved. He took our place to give us a better place. And now let's keep reading. And it says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Jesus did? And you see the path He took? Did Jesus get to exaltation? He did, didn't He? But what was His route to exaltation? His route to exaltation was humiliation. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So you see how unseemly it is for Christians to elbow our way to the front? To push people out of the way so that we can get the best things for ourselves? Do you see how contradictory that is? And how appropriate and how beautiful and how Christ-like it is for us to say, you first, please, and look for the last place ourselves. I was at a church as a guest speaker once, and it was a simple thing, but it left an impression on me. Uh, We came in and we parked. The parking lot was empty. We got there early. I think we were the first ones in the parking lot, a large parking lot for a large church. And eventually we saw a man in a suit walking from across the street and across the parking lot towards the church. And then I recognized that it was the pastor of the church. And so I, I greeted him, we got out and I greeted him and I, I said, do you live near here? Is, is, is that why you're walking to church? He said, no, but I just park my car across the street so that other people will be able to park closer. I thought, that man knows how to park like a Christian. That man knows how to park like a pastor. Take the last parking space so that other people can have a better spot. And you know, that church is a thriving church. We went to many churches that were not thriving. And I put these together. I said, this man preaches and this man demonstrates what Jesus is like. Jesus who took the last place so that we might have the good place for us. Now, he told this to the, to the guests. And then he turned to the host. Now, he's already made everybody kind of tense at this 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 a party. Uh, first of all, he's he's silenced them and healed a man, and now he has sort of rebuked the guests for jockeying for position. And now he has a word for the host. And to the host, he turns in verse twelve, and it says here, Jesus said to him, "When you give a dinner or a banquet." Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, these two instructions go hand in hand. They're parallel. 
Both times he says this, when you do this, don't do this, because if you do this, then something bad will happen, but rather do that, because if you do that, something good will happen. That's how he sets up both of these instructions. Now, in this case, he says, don't invite those who are the people you like, your friends. Don't invite uh, the people to whom you are related by kinship, your relatives. And don't invite your rich neighbors who can do you a favor in return. Because if you do that, you know what might happen? They might invite you back. And that would be terrible. Now, why is that a bad thing if they invite you back? Well, it's a bad thing because you haven't gained anything. You just got paid back. And now it's even Stephen. You did something for them. They did something for you. Nobody did anything extraordinary here. Now, he is not forbidding us to have meals with our friends and our family and and our neighbors who may have means. He's not forbidding that. But he's saying, don't consider this to be something extraordinary. You scratched his back, then he scratched yours. This is just, this is just even Stephen. This is nothing extraordinary. You haven't gained anything. And if you want to gain something, if you want to gain something, if you really want to do something interesting and extraordinary and beneficial and also valuable in the long term, then invite those who cannot pay you back. Then you've actually done something. Because they can't do it back in return. They can't pay you back. And it says here at the end, when he applies it, he says you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just or the righteous. Now, I want you to notice something. And as I was reading the commentators on this, they got kind of embarrassed about this. But I want you to notice that Jesus, in both cases, appealed to our self-interest. In the first one, he said, do you want to get exalted? This is how you get exalted. Humble yourself. And in the second case, he said, do you want to be paid back? But I mean really paid back with something that's worth having? not just a meal, but something great at the resurrection, then this is how you do it. Invite people that can't pay you back. And he is, he is explicitly appealing to our desire to be exalted and to be paid back. Did you notice that? Now, as I said, some of the commentators get embarrassed about this because it seems so self-serving. But notice what Jesus is doing. He is pushing us forward. He is expanding our horizons. And He is saying, seek exaltation. But not these little mini exaltations of getting to sit one row in front of another person. Seek seek getting paid back. Seek real riches. But not the real riches of, of somebody giving you a nice meal in exchange for the meal that you just gave Him. Seek the real exaltation that will come when Jesus comes. Seek the kind of exaltation that Jesus Himself received from God when He humbled Himself. Seek real riches. Seek to be paid back in the resurrection of the righteous. Those are the first three interactions. But we have one more. And this one comes because somebody tried to break the tension, apparently, in verse 15, at least that's how I read it. Verse 15, it says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things... Now, everybody's... This is awkward. Jesus has corrected and instructed and maybe humiliated not only the guests, but also the host. And so, somebody breaks the tension with a a common blessing and says in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
And now maybe he expects everybody to say, oh yes, amen, and now they can get on with the meal, and that will sort of break the tension, and they can move on. But no. (laughs) Jesus responded with a longer parable. And in this parable, he talks about something quite shocking. He talks about a a breaking of protocol that was that was insulting and was rude and was unthinkable. And he told this parable about a man who gave a banquet. And then he sent out his servant to say that everything was ready. Now, in those days there were two invitations. And there had to be. You had to give the initial invitation to which people would respond and they would say, yes, I plan to go to the banquet. But then, when the banquet was actually ready, there had to be a second invitation. Why? Well, they couldn't set their Apple Watch to to know exactly when. He couldn't send a text out to say that it's actually ready. People didn't even have chronometers that would say what time it was, so he couldn't say it's 6 p.m. sharp. So the servant had to go back out and say, it's all ready. You've already accepted the invitation, but I'm here to tell you that it's all ready, so come into the banquet. And shockingly, all of those who had already accepted the invitation now said, you know, I really can't make it this time, so hold me excused. And when you look at their reasons, their reasons are flimsy at best. And they're really suspicious. The first one says, well, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Now... When, if you've bought a piece of property, did you look at the property first or did you buy it and then go look at it? You looked at it first. So that's unusual, the order here. But even if, even if he bought the property without looking at it, is the property still going to be there after the banquet? Yes. No reason he can't go to the banquet. The second one, five yoke of oxen. This is somebody of means who has a a decent amount of property to need five yoke of oxen. And he says, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Once again, do you buy five yoke of oxen without looking at them first? Not usually, but even if you do, are they still going to be around after the banquet? Yes. Not a real excuse. The final one, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. What? So, so none, of, none, of these, none of these hold any water, do they? They're all very suspicious. And it says that these were just three of them, but it says that all of the guests did the same thing. Nobody went to the banquet. This is shockingly rude. And, and so the man, being thoroughly insulted by his peers, says to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Did you notice that the guest list now is the exact same list that Jesus said that we should invite to our table if we want to be paid back at the resurrection of the righteous? In verse 13 and now in verse 21. And so he goes out and he invites them. And they come. And then in verse 22, the servant says, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And so he sends him out even farther. He says, go to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. And there are three levels here. First he says, he invites. And then he says, he brings them in. And now he says, 
compel them to come in. Now, why compel them to come in? Because you can imagine, these folks are just out in the country, minding their own business. They are not in the league of this great man who had this (laughs) banquet. And all of a sudden, the servant shows up and says, "Uh, come into the banquet. They would say, you're joking, right? We don't have a place in the banquet. We don't know the man. We don't, we don't work for him. We're not on his level. And so there would have to be some measure of compulsion, some measure of persuasion to get these people who didn't belong in that banquet to persuade them that yes, they're really invited. Yes, they still should come in. And at the end of this parable, the banquet hall is not yet filled. But, the man, the great man, who now is being called the Master or the Lord, it says in verse 23, go out in the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So at the end of the parable, it is not yet filled. At the end of the parable, there is still room left in this great banquet. And then verse 24 is very, very curious because the Master or the Lord is still speaking. And he says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. But there's, on the one hand, this is, this is obvious. Well, of course, if they don't go to the banquet, they're not going to get the taste of it. But he may be saying there, I'm not going to send them food afterwards, which was a possibility if somebody legitimately couldn't come. He says, no food for them. But there's another curious thing that, that doesn't show up so well in English. But there's a footnote, at least in this version. It says, for I tell you, That you is you plural. Now up to this point, the master has been speaking to the servant. You singular. And he has been giving instructions to the the servant. And now the master says, I tell you that none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is curious. And we might ask ourselves, who is this you plural? What is the master saying? To whom is he saying it? And it looks like this. Have you ever been in a, a play where one of the actors steps out onto the apron of the stage and addresses the audience, not as the actor in the play, but as another person? He, he, he steps out of his role and he addresses the, the crowd. Or some, some spoofs of reality TV, I don't even have a TV, but I've seen some of this where, where you have the, the thing going on and then the, the actor turns to the camera and addresses the camera sort of off stage. It looks like that's what's happening here. That the master steps out of the parable and he addresses the crowd. He addresses the people that are listening and he addresses us as well. And now there is a curious conflation of persons here because Jesus has been speaking to them and now the Master steps out of the parable and the Master or the Lord addresses them as well. There is a conflation at the end of this parable where the voice of the Master and the voice of Jesus become one and the same. And so he's no longer simply the master addressing the slave. It's the master. It's the Lord addressing the people who were there and addressing all of us as well. And he says, For I tell you all that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now this masterful parable 
functions on a couple of different levels. One of the levels is, he has just told them to invite the poor, the blame, the blind, and so on. And then he tells a story about one of their peers who eventually did just that. Because they might have been thinking, this can't happen, we won't do that. And then he gives a story about one man who did. That's a simple level on which this parable functions. At the same time, we need to remember that this parable was in response to what? The, the, the blessing that somebody blurted out. And what was the blessing that was blurted out? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And remember who was sitting at the table. They were Pharisees. They were the best of the best. They were the, the experts in the law. And so when they were saying, Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. He would have been saying, Blessed is everyone like us. Blessed is our group. Blessed are people like us because we're the kind of people who are going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. Not that riffraff out there. Blessed are people like us. And Jesus tells a parable and says, those who were originally invited, when the time came, when the moment to enter in came, after saying, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, we'll enter in, but when the actual decisive moment came, they begged off and said no. And he says, none of those will enter in to the banquet. This is in Luke. Luke wrote a second book. And it's called The Acts of the Apostles. And it tells the story of Jesus' ministry after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. The ministry of Jesus through the apostles. And we read that book of Acts, we find something happened. Curious and glorious and tragic at the same time. They preached the Gospel and some Jewish people came in. In fact, thousands of Jewish people came in. But not in the numbers that were expected. And then somebody had the audacity to preach the Gospel to the half-breeds from the perspective of the Jews, the, the Samaritans. And guess what? The Samaritans came in. And then, then Philip preached the Gospel to this, this Ethiopian who was going back to Africa and he believed it. And then Peter was called to the house of a, a Roman centurion. And, and he didn't even know why he was there at first. And he, he asked them. And, and the man said, well, God told me to send for you. And I would hear words of life. And so Peter began to preach the Gospel. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles. These, these non-Jewish people. These people that hadn't, hadn't been in on the guest list. And then... Paul takes the Gospel and Peter takes the Gospel and others take the Gospel and guess who pours into the church of Jesus Christ? Guess who flocks in to believe in Christ and to enter into the banquet and to taste of the feast and to receive salvation? Yes, some of the originally invited guests, some Jews came in. But surprisingly, it was those people out on the highways and the hedgerows, those people that... The people that didn't know they had a place, they were shocked to receive the invitation. They were the ones who poured in. And somehow, somehow, through the faithfulness of many, the message has gotten even to us. That's, that's remarkable. That, that the invitation has gotten so far afield 
that, that people like us would be invited into the kingdom. You see, that's the bigger message of this parable. The tragedy of the rejection of many of the invited guests that did not go in when the time came. And the, the glorious message to those of us who were on the outside looking in for generation after generation, millennium after millennium. The doors are open. And the banquet is not yet full. The house is not yet full. The house of the Master still has room, my friends. And so the message is clear. Enter in while there's room. And how do we enter in? We enter in by trusting this One who took the last place for us. Now, if we have already entered in, and we want to find ourselves in this parable, we should find ourselves in two places. One, we should find ourselves in the banquet hall saying, how in the world did I get in here? How, how is it possible that, that I'm experiencing such, such delights? And the other place we should identify with, or identify sell, uh, the other place in which we should occupy, that is the place of the servant. Because the master said to the servant twice, go out, go out. And that's what he says to us as well. Go out. How's the kingdom going to grow? How's this church going to grow? How is any church going to grow? How is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to grow? There's one answer to that. Go out. We must go out. We must go out to our neighborhoods near, and we must go out to the ends of the earth to those peoples who have not yet heard about Jesus. That's the message for us. That the doors were open to us because of that tragic rejection of those first invited guests. So it's time to come in, but it's also time to go out and compel them and bring them in. I was hoping at the end of this sermon to sing a hymn, but it's a hard hymn to sing. And so we're not going to do it, especially because we're down some musicians. But I want to tell you about this hymn from 1707 by Isaac Watts. It's called, How Sweet and Awesome. And it follows this parable. And it goes like this. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear Your voice and enter while there's room when... Thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send Your victorious Word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see Your churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing Your redeeming grace. Let's pray.
Our God, we weep, even as Paul did, that your chosen people, by and large, didn't enter the feast when the time came. But we thank you that their refusal turned out for our acceptance. We thank you that the gospel went out even to us. And those of us who were last in line have been ushered in and led to the front of the table. Lord, we marvel that people like us could find a place in your kingdom. But we know that it's possible because Jesus came and gave up everything so that we might be included. He died so that we might live. He was humbled so that we might be exalted. And Lord, may we never lose the wonder at being a guest at this feast. And Father, I also pray for us that we, like that servant, would go out, that we would do our duty and go out and bring them in and compel them to come in, that they too might know the delicacies and the delights of the feast of salvation that You have set before us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Could you stand for one more good word from God? May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.